0: You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Remember several weeks ago at the end of 2 Corinthians, or pardon me, at the end of Ephesians, when we were at the end of Ephesians, we got into that text that everybody knows, right? The whole armor of God. And we talked about spiritual strength and what it was that God desires for us to be strong in. And we talked about like the physical feats of strength, the guy that lifted, lifted, you know, 2000 pounds or whatever, you know, and almost died doing it. Or like the smartest man on earth with the highest IQ and all these different kinds of strength or forms of strength. And there's, the truth is, is there's some really impressive human beings. If we look at the world around us. There really are very, very impressive people. And so, I mean, right now, if we thought about it, a lot of it is generational or cultural, but a lot of us could list out people that we find impressive, right, in various fields. And so in science and those kinds of things, mathematics, of course, you go, Albert Einstein, that's a once-in-a-lifetime intellect. That guy is impressive, right? Or you talk about the sports world, and you just go, doesn't matter what era you're from and comparisons. Michael Jordan, impressive, Right? Or you think about the arts and you think about composition and music, and whether you're into classical music or not, there's no denying that the melodies that Mozart wrote are universally beautiful. There's no one, whether you like the music or not, it's impossible to say that's an ugly melody. It's beautiful, right? And so, in that way, there's really some impressive people. And a lot of times, when we find someone impressive, if we're connected to that thing, whether it's athletics or academics or arts or whatever it might be, we look to a person and we go, I want to be like that person. I want to imitate them because the thing that they're doing, it's it's good. It's impressive. That's what I want to do. But there's this glitch in the system for us as Jesus followers, right? Because we have this sort of built-in knowledge as we go through God's word that we, as Jesus followers, aren't supposed to look like the people in the world, which would lead us to have to consider that maybe the people that we're often most impressed with in a worldly sense, in a human sense, aren't the actual examples of what we should be aiming for, right? Right? There should be some sort of separation, and so then the question is, okay, well, if it's not people in the world who are providing examples for us of excellence and things that we could aspire to in our human existence, who should we be looking toward for inspiration? And I would recommend to all of us that we would look to God's word and look at biblical characters, biblical stories, and the examples that they provide so that we could be inspired to say, ah, those are examples of what I actually, ultimately, eternally want to be, and want to be like. And so, there's that old question. We, we somebody asked this question. I think Mindy, you asked this months ago. Is that question of like, okay, not Jesus. You have to take Jesus out of the equation. But if you could spend an hour talking to anybody in the Bible, a character from the Bible, who would you want to just hang out with and spend time talking? Who? Matthew. Matthew. Interesting. Paul, yeah, like, yeah, like, explain Jesus to me, Paul. That would help. <laughs> Who else? Somebody at one point, go ahead, yeah, Lee. Esther. Esther, yeah, that was a beautiful one to go, like, what an, what an epic story. Moses, that'd be great to hang out with Moses, Abraham, and go, you're dumb too, that's great. <laughs> like, th- th- there's there's that part of, like, wanting to make a connection to someone biblically and go, I'd really love to hang out with them and sort of just get something Of them, right? I'd love to hang out with Job. He's my guy, right? I'd love to hang with Job and just go, how did you do it? Like, how did you endure it? Like, how could you still say God was good in the midst of all the junk that you were going through? And I'd just love to pick some of that up. Now, here's a little twist on that question. Going and hanging out and talking with someone is great. That's awesome, but is there anybody in the Bible that you could think of? Don't answer because it's going to ruin the rest of my sermon. But, but is there anybody in the Bible that you would say, I'd like to trade lives with that person? I would actually like to live the life that that person lived. Now, that's an interesting concept. Because here's, here's the thing. Track with me on this. I've said endless times that the purpose of God creating you and me is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, when he talks about God's foreknowledge and his predestination, God created you and me to ultimately look and act like Jesus. Follow this. When God created Adam and Eve, unique among all of God's creation Unique among animals, birds, natural, the natural order of things. God created humanity unique. In that, he created us in his image. We're a reflection of God. Imago Dei. We were created in the image of God. God created our parents, Adam and Eve, to have fellowship with him, to be in union with him, and have this conversation and this peace between humanity and And God, in the same way that Jesus in the flesh, and remember, Mark's gospel is about Jesus in the flesh, right? It's it's for us to look at Jesus and say, that's the kind of relationship I'm supposed to have with God. That's who God created us to be, was like Jesus, so that there's no sin in the way, that there's no issues of pride or arrogance in the way, but we just have this relationship with him, so ultimately, Jesus is the perfect image that we're looking at and need to become. Now, here's the problem. Having that knowledge, when we as Christians understand that we're supposed to be like Jesus and, and, and we wear the bracelets, what would, bracelet, what would Jesus do, right? I, I met a guy this week who still wears that bracelet and like, it's just like his thing. That's his anchors, like what would Jesus do? How many of us maybe need to go back to that trend and just be like, every day, what would Jesus do? Not what I am doing, So take that to its natural conclusion. But I think oftentimes when we have that knowledge that it's Jesus that we're shooting for and yet we know that we fall short, right? And we can often become frustrated in our desire to know God and even perhaps cause people to abandon faith Because we understand what the high mark is. Paul talks about this this high mark of the calling that we have to be like Jesus. And there's this expectation that we see Jesus in all his perfection and holiness. And we hear we're supposed to be like Jesus. yet, Yet when we find ourselves not looking like Jesus, and even more importantly, when we look at other people who are supposed to be like Jesus, and we find them not looking like Jesus oftentimes, that can rattle our faith. It could even cause us to sort of wilt. I think that's why there's so much apostasy in the church. People who at one point believed, or at least had a root of faith of some kind, but along the way, due to the interactions of humanity with the divine example that we have in Jesus, they lost the thread at some point and went, this isn't, this, this isn't working, like, I know I'm supposed to be like Jesus. Everybody says they're believers and they're supposed to be like Jesus. Nobody's like Jesus yet. So it becomes this frustration. But, but here's, I think, the answer to that. And, and this is the reality and the truth about what we're supposed to look at and be like in our desire to be like Jesus. And that is what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, when we look at the world around us, and we find people to be very impressive, right? And we think, wow, that's, that's great. I want to be more like that person or what they've accomplished. That's actually supposed to be replaced with us as Jesus followers by looking at... Other followers of Jesus who perhaps are more mature than us, down the road with us, farther than us, have more experiences with the Lord than us, and we're supposed to look at them and go, ah, that's what I need to actually look like. It's a funny thing. In different um, religious traditions, check this out. This, uh, this cracks me up. In uh, the 1970s and 80s, um, within Jewish communities, specifically in New York City, they had rabbi trading cards. Did you know that? It's, it's so funny. I, I, it, I had seen this in a movie and went, that's not real. And then as I was thinking about this, I went back and looked at it. And the truth is, is there are rabbinical trading cards. So, so Rabbi uh, Abram Yashevitz, or whatever their name is, whatever, they're like, yeah, I got his like, his trading card, I got this guy, right? And it says, it uses like a famous quote of that rabbi or whatever and then they collect the whole set, you know? And so there's all these little Hasidic boys instead of baseball cards, they've got rabbi trading cards, right? (laughs) But check out why, right? They're looking to those within their faith that are saying, listen, here's the example we're setting out for you of what it looks like to be faithful and following after God. It happens in Catholic and Orthodox traditions as well. They look at what they call saints, Right, And they take note of people throughout the history of the church who have led exemplary lives or at the very least done things for the name of Jesus and for the purpose of the mission of the gospel that's worthy of recognition. God says in the Bible to give honor where honor is due, not to worship somebody, but, but to take note of it and go, maybe I should be a little bit more like that person who was willing to sacrifice their life for the purpose of the gospel, Within our evangelical context, we've sort of stepped away from those things because we, we at least theologically say, well, we don't want to elevate a person. We want Jesus to be the highest. That's true, but what happens practically within the evangelical world? We hear a really good pastor who's a really good speaker and a really intelligent guy who knows theology, and all of a sudden, we become their disciple. And all we do is elevate them and go, no, I only listen to fill in the blank of whichever pastor you listen to or whichever podcast you listen to. We do the same thing, for better or worse. But the concept here and the idea is that we should be looking to those who are pursuing Jesus in a way that leads us to that discipleship and that transformation that takes place along our lifelong journey of following the Lord that helps us get there, that provides an example that we could say, I need to imitate that. I'll submit to you this morning as we're in Mark chapter 1 that there is a Bible character that if you and I were going to say, actually, I want to live their life. They're the image of the person that I actually want to imitate because as I've tried imitating Jesus, I know I'm not there yet, right? I'll get there. We'll talk about that in a second, but I'm not there yet. So who is it that I can attach myself to? Well, in Matthew 11, verse 11... Jesus himself says that the greatest man born among women, meaning the greatest person to ever live, is John the baptizer. That's who Jesus says in comparison to everybody else. John's the greatest. The person that was born, and this is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and, and, and he says he, he's the greatest. And so as a result of that, let's take a look at Mark chapter 1 beginning in verse 2. And we'll read down through verse 8. And we're going to take a look at why John, the baptizer, would be someone that we would attach this level of uh, importance to say, let's take a look at what he's doing. Because if Jesus says he's the greatest man ever born among women, isn't that somebody that we might want to pay attention to and go, maybe I can try and imitate some of the things that he's doing. So let's take a look at Mark 1, verse 2. It says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, I believe John the baptizer becomes for us the model of who we should imitate and desire to be in our physical lives. And remember again, this accounting of the gospel according to Mark is the accounting of the physical experience of God made flesh, Jesus in the flesh. And, and how everything that he did in his ministry was done in the face of all of the temptations that you and I face in our flesh. It's important to know. And now let me be clear about this, and I don't want you to mishear me and say, hey, we shouldn't be following Jesus, we should follow John instead of Jesus. That's not it by a long shot. Understand that Jesus, remember, in Romans eight twenty nine is who we're created to be conformed to eternally spiritually. We will get there in the end. That's who, when we are relieved of this sinful flesh, and we make our way into glory to be with the Lord forever, that's when we're changed to be like him, and we will be like Jesus. We'll be in the ultimate state that God created for us. And remember how I've said many times before, heaven is not some disembodied, floaty place out in space somewhere that we can't see. Heaven ultimately, meaning eternity with God, is going to be the reconstituted, redeemed heavens and earth brought new out of all the brokenness that we see around us. And so heaven is actually going to be, as C.S. Lewis puts it, more real. It's going to be more substantive than what we experience now. Like I can hold on to this mic stand. I can hold on to this Bible. It's real. But there's a limit to the realness of our experience because of sin. Sin diminishes our ability to see things as they are. In eternity, when sin is removed, it's as if this veil is going is to be fully removed from our eyes, and we'll see as things are supposed to be seen in God's glory, the light of God's glory, Jesus as the center of the universe, and everything else in right relationship. That's what we're looking forward to. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that we need to build endurance, is to get through this experience right now so that we can get to what God has ultimately planned for us. So don't hear me saying that I'm replacing Jesus with the apostle, with, with, pardon me, John the baptizer, but rather in our journey to get to where we're going to be, we have the ability to look at those who are models of what it looks like, to pursue Jesus and we should attach ourselves to them. John the baptizer is just one of many and because Jesus said he's the greatest, I say we start there. There's others that we've even mentioned here of those that we would love to spend time and talk with. I'd submit to you Hebrews chapter 11. Read through Hebrews 11 and look at the Old Testament saints that had faith in Jesus without even knowing that his name was Jesus. They saw ahead of time and they saw into the future as it were because they believed in God's promise that God said he would send a redeemer, and so they were like, we're waiting for that. That's who we're looking for. And so go back and look at all those Old Testament saints and go, maybe I should read those stories and follow after them. In all their humanity, in all their faults, in all the sinfulness that's a part of the human experience, look at their acts of faith. Look at how they align themselves with God's will for their life and imitate those things. And so there's four things as we look at John, the baptizer, that I want to point out to you that the scripture reveals that we can attach ourselves to and say, man, that's what we want to imitate. That's what we want to look like as we see John. I'll read it again just to orient our minds to it, and then I want to point the four things out. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The first thing I want you to know about John and how we attach ourselves to him as an example that we imitate, John was the fulfillment of prophecy. John was the fulfillment of prophecy, and so are you. When Isaiah the prophet speaks... He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John fulfills this prophecy by being the one who comes before Jesus and starts declaring, Hey, he's coming. The one that we've been waiting for, he's coming. This is the one. When he's in the city center and he sees Jesus passing by with his disciples and he calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John makes, he's the herald. He's the one that walks before the king, blows the trumpet, and says, Here he comes. Get ready. This is the king. This is the one that you and I are to show honor to. You and I fall in line with that, and here's why. Mark down Jeremiah chapter 31. I'll read it to you. Don't bother turning there. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 33. Listen to this. Jeremiah prophesies, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. If you have believed upon Jesus, if you have placed your faith, not just in the simple act of belief, hoping that you're good enough to get to heaven, but if you have submitted your life to Jesus's authority and say the work of the cross applies to me, it's, it's what has washed me clean of sin. There is no more iniquity or sin on my account. I'm clean and I have God's presence in my life. His law, which is eternal, has been written on my heart. The Holy Spirit is directing and guiding me. Then you and I, like John, are also called to prepare the way for Jesus. John did it in the first coming of Jesus. In his first advent, John was the herald. Here's the awesome thing. As Jesus prepared to leave the earth at the end of his life here, his death and his resurrection, he commissioned each one of us, you and I, to go out and make disciples. We are now the heralds of his second coming. We're the ones who are to tell those around us and tell the world, we're to blow the trumpet and say, guys, the king is coming. That's our task. It is, is to prepare the way in the same way that John prepared the way. And so the first thing to understand about John was that he was the fulfillment of prophecy, but so are you and I. We are called to prepare the way for Jesus. Verse four, Mark one, verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Number two, John was Christ-centered. He was all about preparing the way for Jesus. And because John was Christ-centered, he had to be gospel-centered, proclaiming good news of the king's coming. And if he was gospel-centered, then by Nature, John had to be repentance centered. That's what we need to imitate. That's what we need to connect to John's example is. See, the good news of the kingdom of God come, which, which we're going to hear Jesus state in a few verses later, next week as we see it, Jesus declares what the gospel is. Remember, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the good news that Jesus proclaimed, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in this good news, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so because John was all about Jesus and preparing the way for Jesus, just like you and I are supposed to be all about Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus, John was all about repentance. You and I need to be about repentance. This good news of the kingdom coming, Jesus' presence, his church that he establishes, the family of God expanding, this good news is spiritual ascendance. We start from our lowly estate as sinners, separated from God because of our sin, and because of the work of Christ, we ascend to the spiritual truth that we are now a part of God's family. But not only is the gospel spiritual ascendance, it's also spiritual destruction. The gospel, the coming of God's kingdom, is spiritual destruction of all things evil. Remember when we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, where it says that the weapons of our warfare are not physical, they're not carnal, but they're spiritual for the tearing down of strongholds. Right? The weapons of our warfare, they're spiritual. Repentance is not just about telling God you're sorry. Repentance is not just saying, well, God, here I am again, and I sinned a bunch this week, so I'm going to take the bread and the cup again, and gosh darn it, I'm so sorry, God, I messed up again. I repent, I confess. Yes, it is, but it's more than that. Repentance is spiritual destruction. It's us identifying ourselves with the crucifixion of Jesus so that we see that the sin that was paid for on the cross is being destroyed in our lives by partaking of what Christ gave to us himself he gave us him that's ours to take so that more and more sin is distasteful it doesn't satisfy us it, we're not content with it and the more we bang our head against that wall we just go why am i doing this that needs to be destroyed we need to be violent against our sin Every issue that you and I have internally with ourselves and with other people might manifest itself in some sort of physical, emotional, or, or mental manner. But the core of every issue that we have, every conflict we have, is spiritual in nature And the coming of Jesus into our life is not just to build the good, it's to destroy the bad. So spiritually, all of our conflicts, the root of all of our issues, no matter what that conflict is that seems physical or mental or emotional, it's actually spiritual in its core. And coming and Jesus being brought into that situation isn't just to brighten our day and say, hey, look up, come on, it's gonna be okay. It's actually to destroy the things that are bad. I want you to mark down Matthew chapter 11. I referenced it earlier in terms of Jesus saying that John the Baptist was the greatest person ever born among women. But what I want to do is give you a little bit of context into why Jesus was saying that. John the baptizer, here's what's so awesome about John. John, who was fulfilling prophecy by declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He says that early on in the gospel accounting, but later on, John's in prison, and all of a sudden, John's having a moment of doubt. In Matthew chapter 11, It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to preach in other cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? John has already declared Jesus to be the Messiah, but he's having a moment of doubt and saying, are you really, was I wrong? Cousin, did I get something wrong here? Are you really the one or should I still be waiting for someone else? Because I'm in prison, I thought prophetically, as the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, the moment I declared to you, Bum, ba, da, bah, here's the king, ba, da, bing. all of a sudden, here's the kingdom. And all of a sudden, we get to be your boys, and we get to be a part of the kingdom and all these good things, and yet here I am rotting away in a Roman jail. How, how is that the kingdom? But look at what Jesus' response is. Jesus then begins speaking to the crowds concerning John the baptizer. And he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And he asks the crowds, what did you expect to see out in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Man, that's a conviction for so many ministries nowadays. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, meaning that they're... That they're uh, uh, they're taking part of worldly things. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, and Jesus quotes the prophecy about John. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then he says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than Than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. It's a funny way to render that. The kingdom of God has grown through violence is the rendering that should be accurate there. And the violent take it by force. That's a weird thing for Jesus to say, is it not? that the kingdom of God that's coming, this kingdom that's supposed to be about peace and joy and love is somehow taken by force and the violent take it for themselves. I, I submit to you that that reference that Jesus is making is not about physical violence in any way, but that it is an emulation of John the Baptist's example in declaring Jesus to be the one and to be performing baptisms of repentance that those of us who desire the kingdom of God, we take it by violence against our sin. We repent and we confess. We go through transformation in our spiritual lives beginning with our baptism throughout the rest of our days. We violently violently deal with our sin in such a way that the kingdom of God increases because that's what we really want. John was Christ-centered, he was gospel-centered, and therefore he was repentance-centered. We need to be repentance-centered, killing the flesh, killing sin in our life over and over and over again. Back to Mark chapter 1. It says in verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. The third thing that you and I need to connect to with John the baptizer as an example and why we would want to imitate him is because John was humble. This may be the most important thing I say today. And forget that I'm the one who said it. This has nothing to do with my, my preaching at all. But this statement may be the thing that our generation needs to hear about the gospel going out, about Jesus' rule and reign ultimately. It's that John was humble. We need to imitate that more than anything else in our lives. In the accounting of the gospel according to John the Apostle, in John chapter 3, verse 30, Jesus has entered into his ministry, he has his disciples, John the baptizer had his followers who were assisting him and a part of his ministry in this baptism of repentance, and yet they both ended up in this same region, and both groups, Jesus and his disciples, John and his disciples, are baptizing, yeah? And John's disciples come to him and go, what are we supposed to do now? Jesus is here with his guys. And everyone's going over there for him to baptize them. What are are we supposed to do? And John goes, this is what's right. And he provides the example for us. And he says, he must increase and I must decrease. When I say that that's the most important thing I'm going to say today, That might be the most important thing I ever repeat out of Scripture, period. And that's not hyperbolic. I'm not trying to put on a show for you there. In our calling to follow the way of Jesus, to live in the salvation that he bought for us on the cross, he has to become more and more and more in our vision, more and more and more in our behavior, and less and less and less of us. That has to be the guiding principle for us in ministry. It has to be the guiding principle for us in our life. It has to be the guiding principle for us in our relationships, more of Jesus, less of us. And that's why we look to someone like John the Baptist and say, as he was doing and showing the example of, I need to imitate that. That's what I need to take in. John was humble, number three. Back in Mark chapter one, verse eight. I have baptized you with water, but he, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As always, we can, we can understand and grasp on to the theological truths that Scripture provides for us. God's given us understanding. like We can latch on to those ideas, and, and we can internalize them, and we can study them and take notes and go, yeah, I get that, that makes sense. Regardless of what Lukian said, I understand actually what's going on. Good. But to actually fulfill and do the thing that we're supposed to do, there's a recognition by John. He was aware of the Holy Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You can intellectually know everything about everything in the Bible. But without the activating work of the Holy Spirit, it's just head knowledge. It's not actually our life. It's not actually our heart. No good example, no discipleship course, no theological understanding can replace the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit in our flesh. And so when we come together as God's people, it's not simply to to increase our knowledge, It's not simply to have that sort of moral uh, therapeutic deism, right? Where we do good things to feel good about ourselves and hope that God's happy with us. That's not the goal. It's to release authority, control, direction, power, everything that we try and hold on to and we give that to the Lord and say, you're in control of it. You're in control. The Holy Spirit's working I'm looking at Jesus as the ultimate goal. I'm looking at those around biblically, historically, right now, present day saints that are doing the things that lead us to look like Jesus. And I'm going to imitate those things. I'm going to look at the opportunity to grow into what God has prepared for us. I think the last thing that I would say in in regard to, to this entire topic And this has been an area of growth for me that's taken me years of study to sort of weave my way through and sort of really come to a full understanding. Back to that original scripture that I talked about, Romans chapter eight, verse 29. When it says that God predestined us, that he had foreknowledge, and that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, Because of that piece of information when we look at how God created Adam and Eve, I hope you understand that God's plan of that predestination for all people is not sat in the middle of the debate between Calvinists and Arminianists. It's not. The idea that God chose some and not others. God created humanity in his image. His desire is to be reconciled to humanity. Now, In the theological working out of things, are some condemned to hell? Yes. But why? Because of their rejection of the gift of salvation. Was that foreknown by God as well? Yeah. Absolutely. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. But take note, his desire is for you and I to be conformed to the image of Jesus because he wants relationship with us. So that knowledge should be the thing that drives us to desire holiness, that drives us to desire to be obedient to the things that God has given to us. He's already written his law on our hearts. It's there. The Holy Spirit is convicting us of what is is right and true and of a judgment to come. And the Holy Spirit is leading us into all truth if we'll simply submit to that authority.